can, turn to Philippians chapter 1. I don't know why I just did that. Silly me. We begin a new era, so to speak. Shouldn't take too long. It's only four chapters, right? Oh, man, that hurts. <laughs> that hurts, Jerry. All right. First two verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, in Christ there is fullness of grace and peace. And we desperately need grace and peace this morning. We ask that you would give us Christ, whom you sent that we might have this grace and peace from the Scriptures. And so do this so that we can see your glory, that we might love and delight in you all the more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in seminary, one of the things that I did occasionally, and I should have done it more, one of those things you learn. You know, it was the first time I was in seminary, and I didn't know what I was doing. Um, <laughs> and that was support letters. Uh, there were some people who had uh, provided some support. In fact, um, my books were paid for. I just had to send receipts up there, and this little check would come back, and um, if you borrow my books, you might find their name because I put that down uh, and, and inside each book that was purchased for me by uh, this couple that were friends of mine. And so uh, there weren't a whole lot of supporters that I had, but I did write support letters to the few of them that were and um, just kind of let them know what was going on, how things were going, how I was going. And there's a sense in which uh, this letter is a support letter. Paul is writing because he has received support from the church in Philippi. And he's writing in part to let them know what's going on. But he's also writing because he knows what's going on in Philippi. And he has something to say about that. So as we hit the introduction to this letter, let's not just think it's a boring introduction. Who did it? You know, who sent it? Where did it go? And, but let's remember that this is the beginning of the context. That what, what Paul writes, why he writes the way he writes, even in the first two verses, is a reflection of everything that's going to follow through the rest of this letter. And so... We look at this from the big idea, the big understanding that Jesus sets sinners apart to serve him. Let's start with that idea is that Jesus saves us to serve him. And that may not be crystal clear to you yet, but it will be hopefully by the time we're done. Paul and Timothy are continuing their relationship with the Philippian church through this letter. Uh, this is estimated to be about 10 years uh, after the planting of the church in Philippi, which we looked at in Acts chapter 16. 
And so there's been some correspondence that has gone both ways. Uh, there have been subsequent visits over the course of those uh, those ten years or so. And so Paul writes this, you know, late 50s, okay? Paul writes this, as we're going to see, from prison. Okay, so things are not going swimmingly for Paul at this particular point in time. <coughs> but that's not his immediate uh, point of interest. He writes, and it's interesting that he describes himself and Timothy. He puts them together. They're, they're both given authorship of this from the beginning, although most of the you's, when he talk, oh, not, I'm sorry, not the you's, the me's are singular. So Paul is most likely the primary author of this, but he's recognizing that Timothy is with him. And Timothy may have uh, said, hey, Paul, what about? So both of them are writing, in a sense, this letter. And so they speak as servants of Christ Jesus. Now, that should get us to pause for a moment. Oftentimes, Paul would say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, or something along those lines. But to the Philippians, he says, servants. There's got to be a reason for that. I mean, part of the reason is, is that what they're struggling with here in Philippi is not doctrinal. Now, there's doctrine within this letter, but the conflicts, the problems that they were experiencing were not doctrinal in nature. And so Paul does not feel the need to set them straight doctrinally like he does the Corinthians by reminding them that he's an apostle. But instead, he reminds them he is a servant. And particularly a servant of Christ. Now, as we look through this letter, a lot of people call this the letter of joy. And in fact, there is a lot of joy that is conveyed through the course of this letter to the Philippians. But what really strikes me as I read this letter and think about this letter is servant. That this letter is really about service. Joy is there, but it's really about service. And of course, the highlight of this entire letter is the whole servant hymn of Jesus. And so first you have Jesus who is the servant. Now you have Paul and Timothy who are servants of that servant Jesus. And then you, the implication is that the Philippians themselves were to be servants. Now, Servant can be a tough word in some sense. Um, it can have a very positive and uplifting sort of thing. The idea of the servant of the Lord was often given as a title for people like Moses. And it, and it conveyed that they served God and that they were highly exalted amongst, amongst other men. And they were to be revered among other men. And so uh, there are some who want to paint this picture of servant here in Philippians 1 as a very positive sort of thing. But I think for... The Philippians, it would be in many ways a negative sort of thing because they, as a, in a Roman colony, would be surrounded by slaves. And that word that is used there can mean either a servant, a bond servant, or a slave. 
when Paul wrote to the Corinthians that you were not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He didn't just mean that for the Corinthians, but he also knew that that applied to himself. Paul, too, had been bought with a price, redeemed. And that's language that is often used from the slave market. A slave of Satan that has been purchased and now is in the service of God. That, I think, is what is going on here. The main thought, whichever view we take, whether it's simply a servant or whether slave, the main thought of this word is of one who gives himself to the will of another. It's largely about submission. That Paul and Timothy understood themselves not as free agents out to do their own, fulfill their own agendas, fulfill their own dreams, to fulfill their own will, but they saw themselves as people under authority to fulfill the will of that person. They saw themselves as purchased property of Jesus, as the prophet Bob Dylan sang. And because they belonged to Jesus, they were engaged in his business as faithful servants. They're implying to the, to the Philippians that this is the ordinary life of a Christian, one of submission. Not to everyone's will, but specifically to the will of Christ Jesus. Jesus pretty much expressed it in Luke 9 when he said to all of the people, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's about submission. And Jesus makes it a requirement for following him. In other words, You don't follow him part-time, you follow Jesus full-time. You don't follow Jesus just when he says things you want to do, but also when he says things you don't want to do. If you were to think think of this in terms of uh, families and kids, um, you submit to your parents not just when they say it's dinner time, Although sometimes that can be hard because you can be really into a Lego thing, okay? But also when it's time to clean up, when it's time to go to bed. That's when it's difficult. And the Christian life is not about just following Jesus and the good stuff, but it's also following Jesus and the hard stuff where His will rubs up against our will. And we seem to want to be at cross purposes. And Jesus says to us, when that happens, deny yourself. Don't deny me. Deny yourself and follow me. Every day. Not just on the days you feel like it. And that's reflected in what Paul is trying to convey here to the Philippians. 
that he is a man, uh, Timothy is a man that followed Jesus day in, day out. Whether they agree with Jesus or don't agree with Jesus. They're submitting or, or placing himself, themselves under his will. Okay? But here is the rub, of course. That we all give ourselves up at times to someone or something else. Uh, that prophet Bob Dylan also saying, you gotta serve somebody. It may be the devil, or maybe the Lord above, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. And we all do. Whether we want to or not, there's someone whose will runs supreme in our lives. Now it might be ours. <laughs> but sometimes it's someone else's or something else's. It's not easy to be a servant of Jesus. But before we're, we're, we're a little ahead now, why are they servants of Jesus and why were the Philippians to be servants of Jesus and therefore why are you to be servants of Jesus? It's a, that's an honest question. Well, they say that he is Christ Jesus or Messiah Jesus. This Jesus is God's anointed, appointed, and reigning king. He is the one who rules over the universe. And so if you're going to serve someone, that's someone good to serve. We're currently uh, watching The Crown, and one of the things that you learn if or you observe as you watch that or if you watch Downton Abbey, um, there are lots of servants, and you receive greater dignity if the person you serve has greater dignity. It's better to be a servant of the queen than it is to be the servant of a chimney sweep. What you're actually doing might not be all that different, but whom you do it for is incredibly different. And you will enjoy a better standing in the community and a, and a better way of life if you're serving the queen as opposed to the chimney sweep. Unless, of course, the queen is a horrible human being, then the whole bits go off. But you understand this. They're not servants of a lowly person. They are servants of the most exalted person in all the universe and beyond, even outside of the universe. That's who they serve. But even greater than that, because He is the Messiah, He is the suffering servant that we see in, in, in those uh, hymns in the latter part of Isaiah. In other words, Jesus gave Himself up for them, and now they give themselves up to Him. See, the giving up of Jesus comes first, and Paul's going to talk a lot about that when we get to chapter 2. The giving up of Jesus, how He forfeited, so to speak, for a temporary period of time, the privileges of His deity. So that He might serve. 
His giving comes first. Then comes our giving. As a response to this good news, we then give ourselves to Him. It's a function of our, of our gospel identity, which is what Paul, I believe, is trying to get them to see. Who they are. But who they are is always to be seen in light of Christ. Not of themselves, not of their circumstances, but because of who Jesus is. And because He is King, we are servants. And because He served first, we're able to serve. Because He gave Himself up, we are now able to give ourselves up. And Paul hits this in Second Corinthians chapter 5. He died for all that those who, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. And so part of the gospel response to the death of Jesus on our behalf, the gospel response to His resurrection on our behalf, is to now stop living for ourselves and to begin to live for Him. An echo of what we read in Luke 9. So that then we can do what it says in Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. See, that's where the joy comes in. The joy comes in because we've been saved from our sin by the suffering servant Jesus. And the joy comes in because we now serve this one who loved us so much. That's where the joy comes in. So, Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord who saved us in order that we might then serve Him. Secondly, Jesus sets us apart to serve in our union with Him. See, He then goes on to identify the Philippian audience as saints in Christ Jesus. That word saints means they're holy. It means if you're in Christ Jesus, you're holy. Saints were not an exalted status. They were not, it was not the, the special super forces elite, uh, so to speak, of the Christians. All of them were saints. All of them were holy because they were all in Christ Jesus. This is similar to what we see in the Old Testament. For instance, in Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Okay. Now, catch that. All the earth is his. All the peoples are his. But Israel was to be a special possession of his. Different from all the rest. Okay? And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy or set-apart nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay. So holy has this idea, or holiness has this idea of being set apart from something else, but set apart for a particular purpose. If you go to my house depending on how good I have been at putting things away, which I'm not always the best at putting things away, and it drives my beautiful wife a little crazy because um, she has no to- very little tolerance for clutter. Uh, but you might find a red pen. And if you find the red pen, I will warn you, it is set apart for special use. 
It is not an ordinary pen. It is not to be used for lists for the grocery store. It's not to be used for anything but the special purpose that I, said owner of pen, have, have set for it, and that is, that's my underlining pen. That's the pen I read with. That's the pen I use to write notes in the, the margins of the books that I read so that I can think through the thoughts of the author and, and process what's going on. And then when I go back later and go, ah, yes, this is where it is. Okay, here, here's the, that important thought that I underlined. That red pen has a special purpose. It's been set apart from all ordinary purposes for the specific reason of underlining my books. And that's what Paul is saying. Out of all of humanity, you have been set apart. You have been put into a special category. Okay? For a special purpose of God's use. Okay? Christians are, first off, well, I don't want to say first in terms of order of priority, but the first thing I'm going to say is, is that we are set apart from sin. Okay? The reason we are set apart from sin is because God himself is set apart from sin. You see this reflected in 1 Peter chapter 5. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't live the way you used to live because you weren't too smart spiritually. But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Peter is referring to the numerous references in Leviticus, including some of those that Mike read for us earlier in Leviticus. Our holiness is because of the fact that God is holy. He's holy first. And because we're his people, we are also called to be holy. He is set apart from the rest of creation. There is a creature and creator distinction. He is the creator, and he's at a different level than the rest of creation and the creatures that were within it, like us. God is also separate from sin. He has nothing to do with sin. It is contrary to his nature and his character, and he doesn't partake in it. And so, because of who he is, we who have been set apart are also set apart from sin from the former way of life that most of, many of us used to live, so that we are set apart for his holy purposes, his good, perfect purposes. Okay? We're set apart from sin by virtue of our union with that very same Messiah, Jesus. Okay? Is that connection? We are saints, not in and of ourselves, but we are saints in Christ Jesus. By virtue of of Christ Jesus, because He Himself is the Holy One, and because we're united to Him, we're now holy too. Do you understand the logic there? We're set apart to God through that union that we enjoy by faith in that Savior. And so, when we're united to Christ, all that He is, all that He has done, becomes ours. His obedience 
becomes our obedience. His death for sin becomes our death for sin. Okay? The punishment has already been laid down. We, it's already been experienced in Christ Jesus. His resurrection to life is now our resurrection to life. All of that becomes ours. And Paul goes on at length about that in Ephesians 1. Because all of these spiritual blessings have been given to us by God the Father in Christ. They're not separated from Jesus. They only come when we have Jesus. So we might want these things individually, but we cannot get them individually. They come only with Jesus. If I could be crass for a moment, in a commercial sense. We've all seen those commercials with the special offer. You know, you buy X and you get Y and Z. Now you might only want Y or Z, but you can't get them unless you get X. The Y and the Z might be things like grace and peace, but we can't get them unless we have Jesus. And if we have Jesus, we get the grace and the peace and everything else. We get the forgiveness of sin. We get the gift of the Holy Spirit. We get all of these things because of our union with Him. And so, I get the sense in looking at this first verse that that Paul is, in some ways, looking at two sides of the same coin. Okay? There's an active, uh, sorry, there's a passive side to this coin and there's an active side to this coin. Passively, we have been set apart by Christ. It's something that happens to us. But we've been set apart passively by Christ in order to serve Christ. There's the active. The two sides of the same coin because you don't have one of those without having the other one too. You cannot actively serve Christ unless you are passively set apart by Christ. And He will not set you apart unless He intends for you to actively serve. Do you understand? Do you get what's going on here? So this is really also about identity. Because none of this takes place apart from Christ. Interesting phraseology here, though. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. <laughs> Usually we don't think of somewhere, you know, like, you're not, I guess some, some people do, where are you at is, the, is how people text. And I don't quite understand that myself. Where are you? That makes sense to me. I tend to think of myself as living in Tucson, not I'm at Tucson. But Paul wants them to understand they're in Christ, but living at Philippi. They live in a real place. Just as much as their their union with Christ is real, so is their earthly existence real. They, They live in a Roman colony. They live in a Roman culture. They live in a place filled with sin and maybe a little bit of virtue thrown in for an interesting measure, okay? 
we are united to Christ, we're in Christ, and we live by faith, just as they did, at Tucson. This place which has a U.S. Hispanic-ish kind of culture that has its own set of sin and virtue. We live out our faith in this place. But we live it as people who are united to Jesus. But this letter isn't just to the, the congregation. We see that he also says, with the overseers and the deacons. Doesn't mean that the overseers and deacons aren't saints. They're also saints too. But uh, he recognizes that the officers of the church, officers of the church, need this letter too, and he specifically lets them know that because it might be easy to say, "Well, this is for them people. This is for the sheep. This is for the congregation. This isn't for the officers." And what Paul wants them to know is, it is. They have just as much to benefit from this letter as the average person in the pew had to benefit from this letter. So if you're an overseer or you're a deacon, perk up, people. Paul's talking to you too, and me. I'm not exempt from what Paul has to say here. Overseers, okay, this is not presbyters, this is that episkopos word, okay, but they're, they're, the idea of that is that they make sure the work gets done. And again, this borrows from that language of the household where someone is an overseer, the manager of the house, who watches over the servants of the house, makes sure that they do the job properly, okay? This doesn't mean that they never do anything themselves. Sometimes they do get their hands uh, dirty, but the the emphasis is on um, oversight. Okay, But they are held responsible for for everything by the Lord or Master. So they're not authorities unto themselves. The word deacon that is found here uh, has the root idea of, of one who executes the commands of others. Means wait tables. Deacons are waiters. Okay? Servants. In some cases it can be used for servants of the king. But the idea of, of a deacon is service. And it's interesting because you have the overseer who looks over service and then the servants, the deacons. I stirred up trouble on Facebook because I brought this up the other day <laughs> on the PCA elders website, uh, Facebook page, trying to get the idea across that perhaps we're wrong in thinking about deacons as an office of authority because every word, every, every aspect of what this word means in the, the semantic range has to do with service. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. These officers, as Christians, are, as I mentioned, they're also set apart to serve. They're not exempt from service. Okay? Everyone in the church in Philippi needed to hear what Paul and Timothy had to say. There was no place for an us-them when it came to reading this letter. He's talking about you. There was no place for that. So the suffering servant saved us and set us apart for lives of service and godliness. 
Thirdly, Father and Son grant grace and peace to sinners. You see, the blessing is, was an ordinary sort of thing, and as you know, you've probably heard a hundred times if you've been in a church for a while, uh, the Christian authors like Paul and Peter tended to adapt the general um, blessing that is given at the beginning of it. And so here we see that uh, for Paul and Timothy, to the saints in Philipp- at Philippi, it was grace to you and peace. Who gets grace? Sinners. Wait a minute. Weren't they just called saints? We're both. Here's where we have to go by what Martin Luther said. At the same time, just and sinner. We haven't arrived. We've been set apart for special purpose, but we don't always live in light of that special purpose. We sometimes fail because of our weakness. We also fail because of our folly. And sometimes we fail because of our disobedience. And when that happens, we need grace. That thing that is called unmerited or unearned favor. Uh, that thing which sometimes is turned into the acronym great, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a nice way of understanding it. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. And we see this laid out again in Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus is the one who merited this favor for us. So while we didn't merit it, it was merited. Jesus obeyed so that we could get grace. Jesus earned this for us. And so while we didn't earn it, it was earned and given to us freely through faith in Jesus Christ. But let us remember that Jesus did it for us. Okay? We see, we're reminded from Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What is the grace of God? It's a person, and that person is Jesus. And that same Jesus is the one who doesn't just set us apart from sin, but also teaches us to renounce sin. Who doesn't just call us to a holy life, but also teaches us to live a holy life. That Jesus. And so all of these saints, all of these overseers, all of these deacons need grace precisely because their service is flawed. They sometimes fail. And instead of giving up, they're intended to receive grace, to receive forgiveness, and to keep trying. It's like learning your math. If the first time you you try the problem, you don't get it right, it doesn't mean you give up on math. Although, children, I know you want to give up on your math. But let's ask our math people. Let's pick on Aaron since we haven't seen him for so long. Did you give up on your math the first time you failed, Aaron? No. Do you fail at math? Yeah. He's studying math. (laughs) And when you study something, you fail at it. And servants will fail. It doesn't mean you give up. 
It means you get back up because you have been forgiven and you're being empowered by Jesus to serve Him. Not only do they need grace, but they need peace. And they need peace specifically because sin and conflict break the peace. They break the peace not just vertically, but they also break the peace horizontally. There was evidently some conflict in the church, and we're going to hear about two women, and everyone else was called to help them sort that thing out that they had. Peace had been broken within that church. Peace gets broken within families. Peace gets broken. What's going to fix it? The peace that Jesus gives. Peace is not something that you and I create, but rather it is something that is received, and it is received along with Christ Jesus, because as it says in Ephesians 2, He Himself is our peace. He who made us one, Jew and Gentile, who tore down these walls of hostility. And Jesus still keeps making peace through His sacrifice. He still unites husbands and wives who are filled with conflict. He still unites uh, parents and children who have endured conflict. He still brings peace to churches that fight about things. He is still the peacemaker. But the thing is, is we have to look to Him to make peace. We don't make it ourselves. It's His sacrificial death that restores the peace, not our quick thinking, not our negotiation skills, not any of that stuff. That might be helpful in, termino- in terminology and talking things through, but ultimately it has to go back to Jesus crucified. That is how peace is brought to churches and marriages and families that are in conflict or workplaces. Okay? Now, this grace and peace are from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They work together in order to bestow these gifts upon us. You see, we have to keep in mind that God is a good, generous Father. And that's what Paul wants them to understand. See, He's gracious to you. He's bringing peace to you. I've mentioned it a couple of times already this morning, but Romans 8. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Christ graciously give us all things? And some of the all things necessary would be the grace and the peace. He's already given us Jesus. He'll give us the grace and peace that are necessary. But it's not just that we have a good and generous Father. We also have a Jesus who is a merciful Messiah and Lord. Remember, He is the one who is the suffering servant. The punishment that brought us peace fell upon Him. Will He not then give us peace? That was His whole mission. He will give it. 
As we see in Hebrews 4, he is our great high priest who understands us. He, he knows what it's like to be tempted in all things and yet to be without sin. And so the author of Hebrews says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. In other words, he says, if your church is in trouble, if your marriage is in trouble, if your relationship with your child or your parent is in trouble, what should you do? Go to the throne of grace. Run to Jesus. He understands. And He's made provision for you. He's got abundant grace and mercy, peace for you to partake of. Don't try to solve it on your own. Run to Jesus. There's that scene in the the remake of uh, The King and I, Anna and the King with Jodie Foster and Chao Yong-Fat. Um, the the whole court is in front of the king and they're all on their face not daring to look upon the king and in trots his daughter. And she just goes and sits on her daddy's lap. Why? Because she's the daughter of the king. <laughs> That's why. We have been granted access because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are brought near to the throne of grace by the Holy Spirit. You have access. You can sit on the lap of the king and say, I need help. And help will come. And so we see that one way in which they're intended to receive grace and peace is through this letter. As we read this letter, as we study this letter in the, in the months to come, we, we have to believe what this letter says. That what it says is right, and it's good, and it's true. But we also have to receive what it offers us, like this grace and peace. And then we have to walk in it, because we've received it in the midst of our failures and fumblings. We've called that the gospel waltz before, but it's the same thing. Well, Paul and Timothy set the stage for the whole letter right here. Boom. In two verses. It focuses on identity. How you see yourself. You ought to see yourself in light of your union with Jesus Christ not on the basis of your own merits, not on the basis of your own failings, not on the basis of your own virtues. You have been set apart by Christ in order to serve Christ. But being His servant can be very performance-based at times. And so this letter is really about their need for grace and peace as servants of Christ. See, grace for our failures and peace for our conflicts. And so the gospel that Paul and Timothy are offering the Philippians is a gospel that fits in with real life, real concerns, real people. Because they're people who need grace and peace. So if you were to write a support letter, how would you describe yourself? How would you understand your needs? 
The answer to that question will say a lot about how you understand or perhaps don't understand Jesus, the gospel, Christianity, and yourself. So let's listen for a few months so that we can grasp God, the gospel, Christianity, and ourselves. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm thankful for this letter. I'm thankful there's so much joy in this letter. And that even though there are circumstances that prompt, prompted this letter that aren't great, conflict within and conflict without, but overall this is a church that's in need of just a tune-up. And so may you give us a tune-up as we think about these things, as we think about what it means to be partners in the gospel because we're servants of Christ. Father, help us to get our gospel identity down in the next few months. Just kind of keep bringing that back to us. Help us to grow in our understanding of that and and keep coming back to that as sort of the the ballast that keeps our ship from, from tossing over. Father, help us to grow in service to you and to one another. And Father, help us to look to Jesus for grace and peace. To come to Jesus for grace and peace. To point others to Jesus for grace and peace. So that we can be maturing. So that we can be healthy. So we can be God-honoring and God-glorifying because we know we are not sufficient in ourselves, but that we desperately need Jesus to give us grace and peace. And we ask this in his name. Amen.